I still come across passages like I actually don't remember reading that before. <laughs> it just kind of unlocks another door, you know, and there's another level of understanding and another insight. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Rich Radowski. And I'm Emily Wilson. Today we are going to have a conversation about the Museum of the Bible and about the Bible text itself going kind of a deep dive. And our guest mm-hmm. is Dr. Jeff Cloa, who is the Chief Curatorial Officer of the Museum of the Bible and formerly provost at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, was one of my professors. And we had the opportunity when he was here uh, this past summer at the Concordia Mission Institute Summer Conference to have him come and sit down and talk with us. It's a pretty engaging, in-depth conversation. I can honestly say I studied theology in my undergrad program, but never got into text criticism in quite that way. And just my mind was blown in this episode. So I hope it's equally engaging for you all. Yeah, so we're we're going to talk with him some about the Museum of the Bible itself in Washington, D.C., which you can learn more about by going to museumofthebible.org. And then we're going to talk some about text criticism. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. We are with Dr. Jeff Kloa. He is the Chief Curatorial Officer of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being with us today. Welcome. All right. Thanks for having me to Concordia, Missouri for the first time. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> now you get lots of Lutheran credibility. You can that's share right. that for a while, so that's good. So tell us a little bit of background about the Museum of the Bible for folks that haven't maybe heard of it yet, where it is, and what the purpose and objective of the museum is. Sure. We opened to the public in November of 2017 in Washington, D.C., just a couple of blocks from the Air and Space Museum, right right by the mall there. Hmm. And the organization got started about 2009 or so. Green family in Oklahoma City began collecting some artifacts and had some people talking to them about a museum, decided to take it up on their own and looked for some locations and decided that either New York or Washington would be the best place to go to have a good number of visitors, people who are interested in museums, and end up with the property in Washington. So yeah, we opened in November 2017, and the mission, if you want to put it that way, is is to invite all people to engage with the transformative power of the Bible. And we focus on the history of the Bible, sort of Mm -hmm. the history of the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds all the way to modern translations. Mm -hmm. We talk about the impact of the Bible in America and around the world, culturally, historically, And then we have a lot of interactive media kind of things on the stories of the Bible. So it's the basic story of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, basic story of the New Testament, and to help people learn about the Gospels, a kind of reconstruction of Nazareth Village. Oh, nice. Walk into, and it's pretty cool. So, so, you know, the challenge we had or, you know, the goal was to really present the Bible in a very appealing way. Mm. It's pretty cool. It's, it's, It's beautiful. It's... Uh, there's sound and video and really cool artifacts everywhere. So we really enjoy uh, people going through the museum and, and get great response from people. I have not yet been to the Museum of the Bible, but every time I hear someone who has gone through the exhibits, it, they're just 
in awe. Mm. And it just brings a three-dimensional nature to a lot of the need, but also, uh, you know, our own personal experience and the history and what that looks like. But how did you get involved personally in the Museum of the Bible? That's a pretty long story, really. You know, they they were doing educational programs for, like, with Greek and manuscripts and things like that for several years before the museum opened. And I had a uh, two or three students do some of the programs. They would work on some Greek manuscripts, and I'd incorporate it into the class. And so I knew I knew that was going on. I really didn't know they were doing a museum, per se. Yeah. But a really good uh, friend of mine, a colleague in the academic world, was connected with the museum on their research side and knew that I had been, um, what's the word, uh, pulled into academic administration. Uh, yeah. And so they kind of called me up and said, hey, would you be interested in joining the museum? And, you know, I said, no. <laughs> Honesty is uh, the best policy. You know, and so so after about, you know, four or five months of conversation, trying to figure out what they were doing and uh, how I might fit into that, you know, decided to, to give it a jump. I mean, what was really appealing to me was the goal of getting into the public space, mm-hmm. right? presenting the Bible in a public way for all people, something that people hadn't done before. It's kind of an experiment, right? Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was kind of appealing, you know, to... to to go out there into the public square and, and give it a shot. So, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's really, it really seems like an evangelistic tool that, you know, as it's advertised, because now it's one of the museums that yeah. you can visit in yeah. D.C. Well, you know, it's an interesting space because we don't actually evangelize in the right. museum. Okay, right? so yeah. We don't proselytize. And right. we actually, you know, we don't present any theological views. We don't, okay. you know, uh, if you're, you know, Catholic, Protestant, any mm-hmm. background, even Jewish. You know, we we mm. treat the Jewish faith and, and traditions and, and their way of handling the text very appropriately and accurately. Mm-hmm. So we have a great response from the Jewish community. It's really focused on the Bible itself. Right. And, you know, Bible's the Bible. So, mm-hmm. so we hope people spend three, four hours at the museum and want to learn more. Right. right? We're not going to change everything in, a, in one visit, but hopefully mm-hmm. get people excited, uh, mm-hmm. want to learn more maybe be reminded of some things and you know, encourage people to follow up on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned three or four hours. Is that like if somebody's planning to go to the museum, is that the what you recommend for time? Yeah, or? yeah, it's really, I mean, uh, for a lot of people, I've had this a lot of times where, you know, somebody will come and I'm asked to give a tour and, and they're like, yeah, I got, I got like an hour and a half kind of thing. They're yeah. thinking, you know, boring museum thing. And, and once you get going, mm-hmm. there, there's so much to see and, and again, so interactive and, and it's not just kind of staring at cases. You right. Know? right. So it, routinely people will spend three, four or more hours and still not have enough time to see everything. Okay. So come on back, right? right. So first time visitors, what do you tell them usually like you need to stop by yeah. and visit? So what I'd like to do is, uh, and just by way of uh, explanation, we have six floors of exhibits. We have about okay. 200,000 square feet of exhibit space, huh. very large. And so the three main galleries are those three that I mentioned, the history of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, and the impact of the Bible. On the fifth floor, the top floor, we have special exhibit space, one of which is an exhibit from the Israel Antiquities Authority of about 700 artifacts from Israel from right. the Canaanite period and the Roman period. Nothing like it outside Jerusalem. It's pretty cool. So that's a great place to start to kind of get that archaeological background. Then it's more of a traditional exhibit, you know, things and cases. So you kind of get that out of the way while you're still fresh in the morning. (laughs) And then you go down to the fourth floor, history floor, amazing manuscripts, you know, interactivity. 
and then down to the third floor, and that's where you get all the fun stuff. So the Hebrew yeah. Bible Experience and Nazareth Village and kind of breaks it up a little bit. Then go down to second floor, Impact of the Bible, and then kind of the fun way to end is we have a, uh, it's called the Washington Revelations. It's hard to describe. It's a, kind of a virtual reality ride. You hmm. stand about 30 people at a time. You stand on a platform. You kind of lean into a device, and you you fly through Washington, D.C. The platform moves as you fly along. There's wind and, you know, uh, cherry blossom smells, all kinds of things. <laughs> and just, it just shows uh, places in Washington, D.C., where there's Bible passages or biblical figures portrayed, and it's, it's all over the Capitol, right? So it's just a way to show people that, you know, the Bible's always been there. It's right. kind of hidden in plain sight, and you should probably learn more about it. Right. They won't be able to pass by those exactly. monuments yeah. and those facets without noticing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So just thinking about two of Lutheran Bible translators has contributions yeah, to yeah. the Illuminations Room, I right. believe. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's on our History of the Bible floor, and it talks about the ongoing work of Bible translation. So one mm-hmm. of the themes in our History of the Bible floor is the, the geographic spread of the Bible mm-hmm. and the spread across languages. So it starts in you know Hebrew and Aramaic, Greek, gets translated, right? And then it keeps going. And, and so at the conclusion, or the, at the end, modern day, there's translation work still ongoing. So you have one room, kind of a large oval shape, where we show uh, languages where they have both the Old and New Testament already translated, and we show those. And then languages where they have just the New Testament or other portions translated. And then we have, kind of going around the room, sections that show with kind of clear books. It's a a book that looks empty, which is Mm -hmm. the point. Languages listed that don't have parts of the Bible translated yet, but it's underway. Mm -hmm. And then the last area is languages that have not yet been started. And so it, it just gives people a visual representation of the past work and ongoing work of Bible translation. And and it's really uh, representing the work of 10 uh, Bible translation organizations in America that have grouped mm-hmm. together under the Every Tribe, Every Nation umbrella and are collaborating and coordinating mm-hmm. to complete all these translations over the next, what, 13 years, 12, 13 years? It is, yeah, 12 yeah. years now. 12 years, yep. yeah. A little bit of pressure on so, us. Yeah, a little <laughs> pressure. Good to have a goal, ambitious <laughs> yeah. goal. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty cool. You know, people walk in and, you know, we have videos. People, when they when they get a translation, you know, they're very excited, obviously. Right. And, yeah. and, and so it's really cool to show the, it's not just a, a past thing. Right. But this work continues. Yeah. And so it's great to have Lutheran Bible translators, uh, a part of the mm-hmm. museum there and, had events at the museum, yeah. so it's, it's great to kind of be a support to that as well. So I am a little curious, it, for people that you've encountered maybe who are less familiar with the Bible and, and Christianity, when they encounter the Illuminations Room, what's usually the emotional sort of reaction to yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, the, the first reaction from just about everybody is, I didn't know there were so many languages. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. So over 6,000 languages, and, and, you know, so that's just... You know, mm-hmm. remarkable thing in and of itself. And then the visual impact of having all those empty books mm-hmm. is is pretty striking. And, and that's the point, right? You're, yeah. you're trying to convey uh, that, that message that this work needs to continue, and there's people working on it. So, so that's the overwhelming response is mm-hmm. the number of languages and how much there is still to do. Right, yeah. So the reason why I'm asking that is because, you know, as it's not an evangelistic tool of like Mm -hmm. what kind of reaction, like, you know, if there's a positive, if there's a negative, you know, if you have gotten any questions 
like should it be translated um and just how that might be yeah well that's i mean it's part of being a a public institution in the in the Mm -hmm. public space and you know, there there are people who simply do not like Museum of the Bible, yeah. sure. and that you know that we are too positive about the Bible, that we don't represent, you know, say critical perspectives or or scholarly work on you know origins of the Bible or things like that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you know, at some point you make choices. If you want to do a museum of the history of the study of the Bible, that's a different thing than a museum of the history of the Bible, right? So we took our choices in what we're trying to convey, right. and and I think those are fair. And no matter what you do, some people are not going to like it. Sure. We and we also get not not near as often, but some criticism from people who think we should be more overtly evangelistic, mm-hmm. right? That okay. we should try to convert yeah. people at the museum. But if you think about it, why would anybody who isn't already a believer <laughs> come to the museum if they know they're going to be proselytized? Sure. So. Yeah. So it's that inviting approach right. that, you know, we're, we're just here to show you what there is. And, and mm-hmm. in and of itself, it's pretty amazing. Right. And it's not all, if I'm remembering correctly, not all like just the rosy side, because I think you had an exhibit oh. like the Slave Bible. Yeah, we, we, mm. we talk about, uh, in fact, we have a permanent exhibit on how, well, really in the history of America, there were different approaches taken using the Bible to encourage slavery and to encourage abolition and you know people used it both ways so we're pretty pretty clear about that but of course you know the abolitionist movement people like frederick Douglass and harriet tubman i mean they were so immersed in the in the scriptures and the you know Mm -hmm. exodus accounts and and so uh of course we portray that as well but yeah there there are of course places where people have used the bible in in ways that are not helpful and correct and yeah it's important to point that out yeah too. exactly to keep it yeah. uh, honest and real so mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. can't say you're trying to hide something yeah. yeah right yeah so what are you most excited about with your work in the museum uh, what aspect of your work do you enjoy the most oh wow well truth be told most of what i do is meetings and emails <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> that's kind of how it works yeah but it's what's what's been really fun, and I think a little bit of a surprise is the, you know, we, we are intentionally an internationally focused organization, so we show the impact of the Bible around the world, and so it's been really a great opportunity, I think, for us to help an American audience understand how how broad the history of the Bible is, and communities today who are long-standing. Christian communities, Jewish communities, but under very desperate pressure, mm-hmm. uh, politically persecution. We just uh, we've been working on a project with the Armenian government and church for a couple of years now, and are planning an exhibit for next spring. But there was, a, if you saw the news, there was a, a conflict in in the region mm-hmm. just in the in the fall, and some churches were attacked, uh, and so we worked with uh, with our partners and. A, group of scholars to put together a website documenting the churches in this region and people connected to them. So some videos and just to help Americans understand that these are important, there's a history here, mm-hmm. and you know, we should really pay attention and and try to be supportive, encouraging. And you know, these places of worship have been there for nine hundred years and yeah, people wow. still use them, right? So so just the opportunity to help encourage and support uh, people who use the Bible around the world. Pretty cool. Yeah. So going along with all of the awareness building of the challenges around the world that 
are being faced by those who engage with scripture. Bringing it into a perspective of the Museum of the Bible, what challenges are you guys facing? How might people be more aware of that? Lutheran Bible translators, essentially translatable podcast listeners, be more aware of that. Well, the obvious challenge is the same for everyone is COVID, right? And okay. the, the huge impact. We are a tourist-based entity. You know, we're a business, really. Mm-hmm. And so the lack of tourists to D.C. has a huge impact on the museum. And it's been a, you know, it's been a tough year. Grateful for the support we've had, and, and we've been able to kind of keep things moving and keep the core of our staff on board. And, well, we, you know, we've closed down a few mm-hmm. days a week and those kinds of things. But And the predictions from the D.C. Tourism Bureau, whatever they're called, is that really it's going to be next spring before we, we see those numbers back. So, mm-hmm. so you know, we're, we're in good shape and uh, have a plan to get ready for welcoming everybody back <laughs> to Washington in the spring. Yeah. Right now, we're seeing about 60% of the attendance we had two years ago. So okay. it's not terrible, but but it's you know it's it's a tough business to put it that way. So yeah, sure. so that's a big challenge. And so you know, come to Washington. Right. <laughs> right. The other thing, you know, I'll encourage we we do have, and partly because of COVID, we we just had to do stuff online. And so we have a, a phenomenal creative team and video, all those all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we have a whole ton of resources online. Uh, some are kind of fun. You know, you get these lonesome curators, and Bible is so, you know, very informative. Mm-hmm. Little four, five, six-minute clips, but they're, they're engaging, right? You can kind of just kind of watch a few on YouTube. We've got kind of academic-style lectures that we've uh, placed online, you know, archaeologists and some really good stuff. So a lot of fantastic resources on our, on our website. And for those who are connected to schools, it's a it's a great place to bring school kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you got a, a school group that does a trip to Washington D.C., yeah, definitely <laughs> got put it on the, the itinerary. Yeah, it's a <laughs> great great uh, reaction from from kids. You know, from middle school, high school, just fantastic. So, so uh, you know, really, the, the thing that'd be most helpful is just come visit, encourage people to visit. And, you know, we're happy to highlight the work of, like we talked about earlier, the work of Bible translation mm-hmm. and its ongoing work uh, in the world today. So I think it's a great partnership. How does the scholarly community and, and the wider church interact with the museum? Is there a research that's done through the yeah, museum? And- yeah. So we, pretty much everything we do has academic advisors to it. We have a, a formal academic advisory group that's been really with the museum since the original exhibits were developed. Mm-hmm. It's a group of about 22 or 24 scholars wow. and, you know, all kinds of uh, educational affiliations, everything from, you know, Duke and, and uh, Fuller to mm-hmm. uh, University of Maryland. I mean, it's across the board. So really world-class scholars and, and phenomenal people. You know, they, they all have their own interests and goals and things, but they really want to see the Bible represented accurately. Mm. So, so that's their, their interest, and they might not like everything we do exactly, but, <laughs> but you know, we're, we're trying to make it as widely available as possible. We also, when we do like lectures and conferences, those are always really top scholars. Yeah. Uh, it's, been, it's been pretty cool to be able to interact with uh, names you would recognize as fantastic people, archaeologists, uh, you know, Bible in America scholars, uh, wonderful, wonderful speakers. And then every time we do a new exhibit, uh, we always have external advisors who are, like this project with Armenia again, 
we had scholars, it's just an online exhibit, which looks like it's nothing in some ways. You know, it's, it's just mm-hmm. a few web pages, but it took about six months to develop. Wow. And mm. we had scholars from, from Oxford, from Tufts University, from Yerevan University, I mean, all over the world, yeah. vetting everything, making sure everything. It was obviously a sensitive topic, so we want to make sure we do it in a way that cannot have criticism. Right, because right. we don't want it to be about the museum. We want it to be about the Bible. Correct. Yeah. So that's been that's been a very important part of our work, and we'll continue to do that. So I'm told <laughs> that you have some expertise in New Testament text criticism for me, who's just an undergrad theology major, and for our listeners who might not know what that means. Can you share a little bit about that background and what we should know about? text criticism. Sure. So it's a former life in some ways, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fancy word, a technical word. New Testament textual criticism really is simply the study of the manuscripts of the New Testament yeah. uh, from as early as the second century down through the invention of the printing press. And another word, maybe a, a word that doesn't get people nervous because you hear the word criticism and it sounds like you're criticizing. Mm-hmm. It really just means evaluating. So right. you're evaluating manuscripts. You're evaluating when there's differences among manuscripts and determining as best possible which manuscript is more accurate and, and which is less accurate. So the old term would be something like philology, okay. which is like a lover of words, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, is really what it is. You're, mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a concern to have the exact precise wording as it was passed down through the history of the church. And it, it is pretty technical. You know, it involves the study of Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, you know, all those uh, early languages and early translations. And I'll just say a lot of, uh, what's the word, sitting down and staring at things for hours and hours and hours and then you get one little article out of it, right? So, so it's right. a lot of work. And, and you know, for for the average person, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> we get some got some kids who love text criticism. Right? Uh, fantastic, they're getting excited. That's right. Yeah. Um, about to break the door down, I think. <laughs> Give us more text. Right. For the, for the okay. average person, the only time you'd even notice really is in your when you're going through your Bible, and it'll be a footnote, and it'll say something like, "Some ancient manuscripts say this." Yep. Or the earliest and best manuscripts say this. And it'll be like an alternative word, or in some cases, a couple of verses. Uh, and so it's, it's really a minor impact on you know, modern Bible readers. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very important to apply all the skill, all the abilities, all the tools that we have in order to get as precise a wording as, as, as possible. If we had the original autograph of, say, Galatians, right, right mm-hmm. as Paul sent it to the church in Galatia, you know, we'd be done. <laughs> Great. But we don't have that. We have, you know, 1,200 or 1,500 copies, and mm-hmm. they don't all agree. So it's just a matter of sorting out which are the best copies, and, and let's get that wording as precise as possible. And in the vast, vast, I mean, overwhelming majority of cases, there's really no question, and even where there is question, it almost never affects the sense of the text, mm-hmm. the meaning of the text, and you could pretty easily see why they would, you know, accidentally or maybe intentionally make that change or clarification. You got to keep in mind they're copying, say, the Greek text over a period of 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. So if, I think it's only natural that there would be, you know, hey, the grammar's a little smoother here. There's an easier way to say that. Yep. You know, that word back in 200 meant this, and in 1300 it means this, you know, so... 
uh, you know, you think about 1,500 years, you know, just compare Shakespeare or oh, even yeah. read, you know, Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson. It's going to be a very different mm-hmm. kind of English than what we read and speak today. So, so that's really what we're trying to figure out is how has, has the, the tradition developed and how do we get back to the earliest possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then, of course, throughout church history, there there's always these debates that or they arise periodically, questions about, so you mentioned autographs, and we don't have autographs, which would be right. the original, actual written mm-hmm. text by the authors. Uh, there's just copies. So how do we know we have the right version of the Bible? Like, how does text criticism help to to answer that? How can yeah. the Bible be authoritative? If you Well, in some ways, text criticism can't answer that question. All, okay. all it yeah. can do is look at the manuscripts and, and make decisions among the manuscripts. You know, But at the same time, we don't have multiple different versions of Galatians, sure. right? There's, there's pretty clearly one version of Galatians, and we have a bunch of copies. There's one version of 1 Corinthians, and we have a bunch of copies, right? Mm-hmm. So going back all the way to you know, the year 200 and even earlier, these manuscripts are all consistent. They agree with each other. And there really isn't any evidence whatsoever in the manuscripts that there was mass revision or alterations. You can look at quotes from early church fathers as as early as, say, 90 AD, just within a couple of decades of the writing of the Gospels. And they're quoting they're quoting what looks like the Gospels, right? So that consistency in the manuscripts, the consistency of use in pastors and theologians throughout the, the history of the church, really there's there's not a whole lot of question about do we have a reliable New Testament text. All right. So like what's well, almost 10 years ago now, there's a new critical edition of the Greek New Testament mm-hmm. that came out. It has, And it's a little different than the one like I used when I was in seminary. So, you know, how did these changes get made and what's the prognosis for further change? I mean, is there like a large volume of texts to look at yet, or yeah. how does that all work? Yeah, good question. So, and this is, this is the remarkable thing, is there are new manuscripts discovered fairly regularly. Okay. You know, every year there's maybe three or four papyrus documents, which date maybe to the 5th century or earlier. They tend to be pretty fragmentary, you know, the size of a credit card or an index card, but when these are discovered, they all kind of fit the rest of the manuscripts. In okay. other words, they're not showing crazy new things or vastly different things. They, they look like the rest of the manuscript tradition. So the fact that we have now uh, somewhere around 5,500 or 6,000 Greek manuscripts, wow. all, that, all that does is show how consistent it mm-hmm. is. Wow. And the more they find, the more it just kind of continues to emphasize that consistency. Now, having said that, there are new tools available. Reading them, at, you know, for my dissertation on 1 Corinthians, I think I read through about 70 manuscripts of 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's why it took six years. Um, <laughs> now, with, with teams of scholars and students working on these digitally, they're all being entered into databases. They can be compared instantly. Mm. And so uh, these, these digital tools are allowing this work to happen in a much more detailed, refined way. And, and so, as a result, with new discoveries, with uh, refined methodologies, with more information, there are, you know, you're going from, say, HD to Super HD, right? Oh, I don't know, yeah. was it 720 to 1080 or 1080 <laughs> to 4K? I don't know what those are. Right? <laughs> right. But, you know, you're, you're getting the same movie, but you're getting, you know, 
blacker blacks and you know whiter whites or whatever you know it's just more it pops a little bit more is all yeah and so you know that's just the ongoing work of of this kind of detailed scholarship there's a new edition actually of the gospel of mark and then there'll be some some slight changes in the text of the gospel of mark i could probably tell you the five or six that would affect translation not going to be a surprise Mm -hmm. and they've been known about by scholars and and others for decades. Mm-hmm. But these refined tools and methodologies just allow that extra precision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. and so I think it's pretty exciting, actually. The more work you do, the more confident you can be. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, 5,500, 6,000 manuscripts. So like with any other document that's out there right now, besides the Bible, like, is there anything close to that in terms of? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. You hear that comparison a lot. Yeah. Obviously, there's reasons. There's 6,000 Greek manuscripts because it was used that long. You had a church and monastic system through the Byzantine Empire for 1,500 years, so they're copying these for use liturgically and and in devotional life. So it makes sense that you got that many copies despite, you know, wars and and everything that's happened for 2,000 years. There are other forms of literature, for example, the uh, Iliad and Odyssey, Aristotle, some of those classic, especially like Aristotle, there's there's some pretty early works of Aristotle, mm-hmm. papyrus manuscripts, even within a hundred years of of authorship. Wow! And so it's it's not like it's far different for the New Testament. It's it's just a different way of preserving. Sure. Right. What is interesting is that for for texts like Aristotle, which are kind of you know obviously they're philosophical and political and legal texts in some ways. There is more revision and adaptation pretty mm. early on for those texts, just because of the way they were used. Mm. Whereas with the New Testament manuscripts, there's there's definitely more of a concern for just making a copy. Right, right? okay, sure. Just kind of re- passing down what was received. So it's handled a little bit differently, and it's partly because of the theological perspective, but also the way that they're using them. You know, they're using them for worship. They're using them for devotion. or They're not using them to... Um, uh, you know, for legal purposes mm-hmm. or philosophical mm-hmm. or teaching purposes in the way that a philosophical text would be. Mm-hmm. Right. So we are very soon approaching the 500th anniversary of Luther's yeah. translation of the New Testament. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask you uh, to comment on the impact of this 500th anniversary that we're coming up on, but also the impact that we had from Luther translating the New Testament. Yeah, it's a great anniversary, and you know we're at that time where everything has a 500th anniversary. <laughs> but this one, is, this one is worth noting significantly because, you know, so it's September 1522. Luther's uh, first, the September Testament is is released, and the the impact is electrifying, right? You know, the, everybody remembers Gutenberg, right? The invention of the printing press is this revolutionary event in 1454. And that's important, but you know, Gutenberg could make sixty Bibles in the time it took to uh, to take make one manuscript. So it's it's faster, it's more efficient, but it's not like the internet where everything sure. is everywhere at the same time. You know, sixty years later, when you get to Luther, they've they've figured out how to make paper more cheaply. They've figured out how to make ink that sticks better. They've refined the printing process, mm. and so really, Luther hits it exactly the right time mm. for mass media. <laughs> And and so that's really the revolution. Yeah. So the impact of Luther, uh, and you know, he had been popular already because of his you know arguments with the Pope, right? He's a <laughs> controversial figure. And so when Luther's Bible comes out, that really has a huge impact, not only among German speakers, 
But William Tyndale, uh, in well, he's English, but he's on in exile <laughs> because he's a he's a Protestant. He's on, on the continent. Tyndale essentially his first uh, translation in 1525 of the New Testament is in many ways kind of a revision of Luther. Okay. Uh, he works from the Greek and he works with Luther. He even even follows Luther's sequence of the New Testament writings, hmm. uh, which Luther kind of reorganized in his own special way. So uh, Tyndale was criticized for being essentially you know, a, a Lutheran. <laughs> and he wasn't really theologically, but he was profoundly impacted by Luther. And Tyndale's translation, we think of the King James as the big, you know, all our language comes from that, but it's really, it really goes back to Tyndale. Okay. Mm. Uh, Tyndale became the basis for the Coverdale Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, all these pre-King James English Bibles. The Geneva Bible is really the Bible of Shakespeare, and some of that is reflected in the King James. But in, in large measure, really, Tyndale is still the, the Bible that we read in, in the English-speaking world. Mm. And, you know, he, he's... He's pretty reliant on Luther. Mm-hmm. So, so it's pretty interesting how that anniversary is not just, okay, they got a Bible in Germany, who cares? <laughs> but the desire to have the Bible broadly available, to translate it in a way that communicates to the average person. Mm-hmm. His translation style is not ponderous. He doesn't use fancy words. Mm-hmm. He wants it to be uh, readable and understandable to everybody. That foundation was picked up by Tyndale, and that really has influenced Bible translation ever since. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it really, the impact cannot be overstated. And of course, that went on to impact the German language, the English language, other languages, you know. So so it really is a, a pretty pivotal cultural moment when Luther releases that first mm-hmm. uh, translation in 1522. Yeah. Thinking of the ongoing work in vernacular languages of the world, how does that possibly influence our understanding of the text of Scripture? How how does it have an influence, or could it be influenced by the field of text criticism? So, well, of course, translators are aware of you know if they're working from the Greek, they're they're aware of the differences in the manuscripts, and every every edition of the Greek New Testament will have these notes yep. that um, indicate where there in the history of the church there's been some differences in the manuscripts or whether they're important enough to, to make a note about. I have to admit I'm not entirely up on whether or not those are reflected in vernacular translations the way you would see like in a say ESV Bible or an NIV where they have those footnotes. Personally I'm I'm of the opinion really that I'd rather not have any footnotes. Okay. You know there's scholars who've done this work over centuries and centuries. There's not a whole lot of question anymore really and I, I don't really see the value in putting a little footnote without explaining why it's there. Yeah. So my my preference would be simply just translate what's in the text and, and go with it and be confident in it because you really can. Now, if you're doing a study Bible or an academic version of the Bible, yeah, then that's where you talk about those kinds of things. And, and when you're working with translators in the field or others, you know, they should be aware of these kinds of things and understand you know, how the language works, how textual copying happens and why these things would occur. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I think the last thing we want is everybody producing their own version of the Bible. Sure, that that yeah. just would make no sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and there's really no need to kind of redo all that work again. So in light of this upcoming anniversary of Luther's New Testament and your, your passion for God's Word, the Bible being understood and accessible to uh, not only Christians, but the public and to better understand the history 
What makes you passionate about having scripture in your own language and having it available to people in the language that they understand best? Yeah, yeah I mean, I would just read it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm just a, I think the best thing we could do is to encourage each other, encourage our kids to read the scriptures and, and read them together, just to be immersed in them, to let them speak. What, what's, what's been interesting to me, I mean, I'm, I'm getting kind of old, you know, and read the Bible in many times in many different forms, Greek, English, devotionally, academically, all these things. And, you know, I still come across passages like, I actually don't remember reading that before, <laughs> or I never realized it said it that way. And it's not like it changes everything, but it, it just kind of unlocks another door, you know, and there's another level of understanding and another another insight, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the, the worst thing that could happen is we get complacent mm-hmm. and think we know. We I know read it Bible. once. You know, I read it. You know, <laughs> yeah, I already so, read okay. that. Yeah. Parable of sheep and the ghosts, I know that. I don't need, you know, yeah. parable of the good Samaritan, I don't, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so the encouragement, that's what I like about the museum, is just to get people excited about the Bible, just to mm-hmm. read it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, it's, it's done these amazing things over the centuries, and it still does. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really gets me excited, the opportunity to, to make other people excited about it. Right. We have had the, the pleasure of interacting with international partners who are reading the text for the first time in a language mm-hmm. that you know speaks deeply to them, yeah. and how it's like a new revelation yeah. in a way of, oh, for, for them, it, they're hearing it with new ears or, you know, new eyes, you know, as it's being dramatized or for signed languages. And just how beautiful that is of this mm-hmm. new understanding of God speaking to them in mm-hmm. a language that they understand. Yeah, yeah. That's a great privilege and opportunity that you guys have and fantastically important. Yeah, absolutely. We're thankful for the partnership with the Museum of the Bible and appreciate your time with us today. We've been talking with Dr. Jeff Claw from the Museum of the Bible. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, as promised, a deep dive into text criticism, but just a, a great, I think, you know, accessible explanation of uh, how ultimately this very technical, detailed piece of work that is a specialized role that um, you know people engage in really gives us confidence in the Bible that we have. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of in awe as we were in the conference in this interview of how thankful I am to have God's Word it's in its entirety yeah. in my own language, and that it was not just oh here it magically appeared. It was years and years of careful study and copying and all of the work that went into it that we're able to build off of. The church is, uh, has its foundation in the word and, uh, that it was no small task. And it's so true. We think, you know, in the book of Hebrews, we hear about this great cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. that we are running our race with and we're part of yet again, at certain times, this, this copying and in certain eras of church history, just a very few people doing this copying and preserving so that it's not lost and, mm-hmm. and uh, we're the beneficiaries today. And again, you can see more of that history and just how the Bible has been used and what it looks like in other contexts and uh, how it's changed societies and so forth by visiting the Museum of the Bible, museumofthebible.org. And of course, one of those key historical events is the 500th anniversary of Luther's translation of the New Testament into the German language as a, a real 
launching point for the Reformation to take hold and to change society 500 years ago and really affect how we practice Christianity and understand the importance of God's Word today. And in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be kicking off a, an over a year-long celebration of Luther's New Testament, and the publishing officially was in 1522. So we're continuing the rest of 2021 and into 2022 celebrating Luther's New Testament translation and how that really continued the Reformation. It wasn't just the 95 theses in 1517, but rather people having God's Word in their vernacular in their hands and in their hearts. Absolutely. And uh, we know, as the scripture says, these things are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, we may have life in his name. And uh, again, just what we talked about today and thinking about the the anniversary of the translation just gives a new appreciation for how God has used people to continue to spread his word. And we get to be part of that heritage today through the work that uh, we're partnering with all over the world. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. You can find past episodes of the podcast at lvt.org slash podcast or subscribe on Audible, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators' social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lvt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. This episode of Essentially Translatable was produced and edited by Andrew Olson. Our executive producer is Emily Wilson. The podcast artwork was designed by Sarah Lyons. Music written and performed by Rob Light. I'm Rich Rodowski. So long for now.